Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 166 of the show, and it's August the 14th, 2023, as I record this. What's on into today's interview? Well, in this episode, I talk to Dr. Marley Vlock, who is a virologist, historical martial arts instructor, and historical flag waver. We'll get into exactly what that means in the interview. And she's a competitive target shooter who represented South Africa for a decade. Now based in Ottawa, Canada, Marley tells us about her work finding viruses in the oceans and working on diseases, including COVID, of course. Marley got into historical martial arts through a Groupon voucher, which started her on the path to becoming a rapier instructor. Since moving to Ottawa, she has changed up her weapons a bit and also got into historical flag waving. The flags are very big and were used for both battlefield signaling and for raising soldiers' morale. Some of the moves are very gymnastic and others involve sword actions, or even a sword in one hand, flag in the other. We also talk about target shooting, biathlon, the Neapolitan Masters, comparative studies and driving across Canada with a car full of swords and guinea pigs. You may have noticed that my voice is a bit odd. That's because I managed to lose a chunk of a molar last night at dinner. So I'm recording this with a mouth guard in to protect the exposed nerve and my tongue from the jagged edge of the tooth. And I'm off to the dentist this afternoon. I thought there was a good chance that my jaw won't be working properly tomorrow and this intro needs to be recorded in good time this week. So here we are. In happier news, my medieval wrestling course with Jessica Finley, um, known as the Abrazare course for us furists, is ready a couple of weeks earlier than expected. So it is now available. And for the next couple of weeks, you can get it at the now traditional 50% discount by going to guywindsor.net forward slash abrazare23. That's A-B-R-A-Z-A-R-E-2-3. Link in the show notes, of course. The discount will expire on September the 6th, so grab it now if you want it. I'm also belting ahead with the academic volume to accompany the course. This will be called, from medieval manuscripts and modern practice, The Wrestling Techniques of Fiore Delivery. A snappy title, I'm sure you'll agree. The first draft is complete, and I'm resting it before coming back for an editorial pass. This will be in the same format as, from medieval manuscripts and modern practice, The Longsword Techniques of Fiore Delivery. So, for every play, it includes the image from the manuscript, the transcription or my transcription, my translation, my commentary, when necessary, and a video clip showing you how I do the play. There's also a bunch of academic support stuff, and I've, been, I've thrown in the Abrazari on horseback stuff as well, just for fun. While that book is resting, so a sensible writer rests their drafts before coming back to edit them, While it's resting, I've written the first draft of another book, How to Write Training Manuals for Historical Martial Arts. I think we can safely say I know my subject there because I've written quite a bunch of training manuals for historical martial arts and people seem to like them. So if you're interested in reading an early draft of this and are willing to commit to actually answering a short questionnaire on the book, then let me know. It's almost ready for an external reader or two. Now, Without further ado, and without further kind of mumbling through a mouth guard, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Dr. Marley Vlock, 
who is a virologist, historical martial arts instructor, and historical flag waver. We will get into exactly what that means in the interview. And she was also an ex-competitive target shooter who represented South Africa for a decade. So, without further ado, Marley, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. And good job on the name. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, I, I, I worked all day on that one. All right. So, whereabouts in the world are you? I am currently in Ottawa, Canada. Um, I guess not a lot of people know about Ottawa, even though it's our capital. It's not a super big city. It is one of the coldest capitals in the world. Okay. Um, yeah, we're just we're just north northeast of, of Toronto, sufficiently close to to the states. Um, lovely city. If you haven't been here, great city to visit. Beautiful. See, I've, I've been to Toronto more than once i've been to vancouver more than once i've never made it to ottawa yeah no you should it's beautiful it's bilingual so you can practice your french which i don't speak but sure that means that is not a good idea because my 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 spoken french has always been crap i can i can read sort of an 18th century fencing text in French, I can just about handle. But okay. on any other subject, no. And and conversationally, not really. Well, there's a bunch of French fencers here, so you know you don't. <laughs> I succumb. I succumb. They can laugh at my laugh at my French. Yeah, great. Yeah, they're pretty polite over here. They probably wouldn't True. laugh at you. Um, and actually, I okay. French people in Paris have always been. Anytime I've tried to speak French in Paris. I just get just sneered at, right? But oh, outside, out, but outside of Paris, every French speaker I've ever spoken to in French has been like really impressed that I tried, even if the result wasn't very good. Okay. <laughs> it's like when a five-year-old comes up to you with a, with a drawing that they've done, and you're pretty sure it's an airplane, but you're not quite sure. You're like, um, well done, dear. That's, that's amazing. That's great. Oh, well done. Yes, that's. That's basically how nice French-speaking people respond to my spoken French. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't tell you whether people here would respond well to it because, you know, I don't speak French. But I right. think overall people are pretty accommodating. Excellent. So uh, are you in Ottawa for your virology job? Is that the... Yeah, so I we actually moved here because my partner got a, a job with Stats Canada and they're, they're in Ottawa. And so I looked for a job here. What is Stats Canada? Uh, oh, it's the statistics, the governmental statistics department. So, so he okay. works there, um, and I I work in in biotech here. Okay, and you're a virologist, correct? Yes, I have an inordinate fondness for viruses, and I don't think your podcast is long enough to cover that. Well, no, I think it actually is because it's as long <laughs> as I want it to be. Right. And oh, we, we have had we've had one virologist on here before who completely blew my mind with stuff I didn't know about how viruses um, sort of without viruses we wouldn't have developed intelligence because the sort of little packages of chemical data that gets shuttled around in your brain is actually wrapped in something that was originally a virus or something. Right. I'm, I'm probably getting it wrong, but that's I, I was like, oh my god, I never knew that. So if you want to if you want to just spend the rest of the time talking about virology, <laughs> that'd be great. But I was just thinking. You have a statistician in the house. Yes. And a virologist in the house. Yes. Just how badly did you want to smash your head against a wall? Oh, no. With everything that everyone said about the pandemic. Oh, 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, well, we don't have no, to. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm yeah. just kidding. It, um, it was tough. You know, I think yeah. we had a lot of rant sessions. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think at some point though, we came to like a healthy compromise where we were just like, we cannot change humanity. <laughs> no. <laughs> like. But it was hard, right? It was hard to disconnect because I would get these questions. I still get questions where people are like, do you really think we should take the vaccine? I have, I know of five people who took it and died. And I'm like, well, yeah. I took all four shots and I feel okay. Actually, I just had a medical today and I'm like, fit as a fiddle. So, you know, <laughs> like. Yeah. And, it, but uh, I, think, I think a lot of what's going on there is, if, if people get ill and die, well, that's kind of natural processes and right. that's not so bad. But if, because every now and then a virus does cause a bad reaction, uh, sorry, a, a vaccine will cause a bad Absolutely. reaction. So, so you have maybe a one in a thousand chance of dying of the disease or a one in a million chance of dying of the vaccine or less mm -hmm. than that, yep. right? But, but if you die of the disease, well, that's kind of not your fault because diseases are really tricky. But if you go and get a vaccine, that's something you did and something somebody did to you. And so that is a million times worse in people's conception of these things. Yeah, I there's, guess. But then, you know, we don't think about that when we drink or when we smoke. No. You know, they've just lowered the what they call the safe alcohol consumption in Canada. Um, it's oh, much yeah. less and, than what it used to be. And honestly, I've been north of the safe, safe alcohol consumption in pretty much any country <laughs> since I was about 10. Well, so. I think most people who weren't before <laughs> the pandemic definitely are now. <laughs> That's very true. And like, you know, people ask about, um, you know, swords being dangerous. I'm like, yeah, but do you drive a car? Right. And, oh, but that's different. Uh, how is it different? You know, like, and, you know, I've, I've been doing um, flying small aircraft. And at the level that I'm doing it at, which is, you know, flying, you know, taking off from the airfield, flying around a little bit, maybe doing a few extra landings for fun, and then flying off to some nearby town and circling around it and coming back to practice navigation and maybe landing somewhere else but coming back again. But basically, never being more than about an hour and a half's drive from my original airfield and never more than about 10 minutes flying time from somewhere you could safely land. Um, it's actually at that, in that sort of, in this phase of the training, it is more dangerous to drive to the airfield than it is to fly the plane. Hmm. Wait, does that weird. mean you're going to fly over to Ottawa and come visit us? Uh, you know, the thing is, thing is, no, cause, <laughs> because the bit of flying that I really like is not going in a straight line for a long time. Yeah, that's fair. That sounds it's, pretty it's the It's the sort of, you know, turning around in circles and, you know, I would love to be an aerobatics pilot. That's that's oh. where I would like to get to. I had day, an uncle maybe. who did that. Oh, really? Yeah, he loved it. I bet. Absolutely loved it. Took me up as a little kid. I was terrified. Yes, excellent. Yes, <laughs> the screams from the back are great. <laughs> yeah, good. My, my instructor was an aerobatics pilot. And so we've done some things in, in the training Cessna that they're definitely safe. You wouldn't do anything unsafe, but they didn't right. feel safe. They felt like, oh, dear God, I have seconds to live. <laughs> well, apparently you have multiple repeats of those seconds to live, so that's good. Well, there you go, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so what kind of virology do you actually do? Oh, I am one of those 
odd specimens that I would call a generalist in the world of virology. Okay. <laughs> like I've done most, I think most virologists, you know, focus on the medical side. Um, mm -hmm. And that's sort of where the funding is. Um, is there any other side? Yes. Oh, my Tell goodness. I, I, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's the agriculture side, and that's sort of where I started off. Okay. Right? Like using insect viruses as biocontrol agents. Um, okay. Say that again. Using um, insect you, viruses as biocontrol agents. How does yes. that work? Um, so, essentially, they use viruses that are specific to select insects. Um, which right. are normally, you know, pathogens of crops, and they use them as an alternative to pesticides. Okay. Um, How, is that effective? It's pretty effective. So we have a we have a bacula virus product that's been out for years. Mm -hmm. um, it works pretty well. I don't know how cost effective it is. Um, and bacular viruses tend to not be that specific. So what, what I'd originally worked on was a virus that was specific to cotton bollworms. Okay. Um, and it was, it worked great, um, but it never surpassed the gold standard of what industry had. And that's the hard part ah. in agriculture, right? Like you have to show the new technology is better and surpasses right. it substantially. So that's okay. when I left that behind. I was like, no. Too much politics. <laughs> okay. Um, and then I got into, and this was my, my PhD work, um, a field which is not very well known, but actually gaining a lot of traction since COVID, um, environmental virology. So I sequenced the ocean, essentially. Like we would go out on a boat mm -hmm. and collect liters of water and filter out all, and when I say big things, I mean like bacteria. Um, yeah. Okay. And then concentrate virus particles and analyze them and see what's in there. So, so there are viruses living in the ocean. Oh, so much! It, okay. You swim in it. It's like a soup of viruses. Doesn't that just make really? you want to go back to the beach? <laughs> Honestly, it doesn't bother me. Oh, um, okay. you know, I, I, I did some biology at university as a minor subject stuff. So I, I'm maybe a little bit more familiar with just how much we are covered in bacteria and viruses all the time. Yeah. You know, I've cultured bacteria in Petri dishes and done ground stains and whatnot. So, oh, good. Um, so, yeah, so, so, <laughs> so, the, so the notion of going into the sea and actually it's full of shit living in it, that's yeah. sort of to be expected. It's like so it's the much. biggest Petri dish on the planet. Yeah, so much. Um, um, so what, what are these viruses doing now? They're sort of like preying on plankton or what? Yeah, exactly. It's almost like you're in the field. Um, the majority of them either infect bacteria or single cell eukaryotes. Right. Um, and so they're involved for, um, in a lot of nutrient cycling, you know, as mm -hmm. they lyse the hosts and nutrients get released. Um, okay. And that's kind of what they do. They don't infect people. Um, there was one story which was a little disconcerting. They found these giant viruses, right, that infect amoeba. And they're huge. They're like bigger than the smallest bacterium. And wow. someone decided it was a good idea to do an animal experiment with it. And they injected it into like brains of mice, which ah. like I get squeamish that I'm not an animal experiment person. Um, but it actually caused an infection, which had me a little worried for a while because I've been filtering that stuff for like years, right? <laughs> that, that, but it's, it's like, how does something, something that's adapted to look at an amoeba and go dinner? 
and and jump in there and start taking over its DNA and you know doing doing the you know reproducing itself or whatever. It's it shouldn't like the environment of being inside a mammal because it's totally different. Yeah, I mean it wasn't necessarily the world's most robust study, but if you were sufficiently close enough to those sorts of samples, you go, oh no. <laughs> but it's okay. I've made it. I'm confident. I'm okay. You don't have you don't have amoeba virus in your brain. I hope not. <laughs> I know well, some people might argue about that, but well, you seem to be thriving on it. So there we go. Uh, okay, so, so you're studying these vi- viruses. Is it for curiosity, or is it for some applicable purpose, or? So again, I think there are some groups who have looked into trying to use them as biocontrol agents for these harmful algal blooms. Um, I looked at it more from a diversity and evolution perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there are some really nice big data studies where they try to find the viral ancestor, which is no easy feat. Um, Mm -hmm. And they look like some of the viruses we see in the ocean. Um, And so a lot of my work was more discovery based, Um, just what is out there. Um, And then, you know, trying to put it into some taxonomic framework and, you know, providing, providing that missing context. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think there was before, just before I did my, started my PhD, um, there was a viral evolution book that got published. And there was a quote in there that, that, really stood out for me where, and I'm totally going to misquote this, um, but essentially where they said that, you know, we don't really have a hope of advancing virology until we actually understand what the hell is out there. Right. Um, yeah, fair enough. And so I, that was sort of a driving force behind being sneaky, snooty, okay. wanting to know what's <laughs> going on. So, okay, here's a question that just popped into my head. Um, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg question. So a virus doesn't have any of the necessary components for reproducing itself. It has to basically take over the reprodu- reproductive capabilities of some other cell, right? Like a bacterium or a For the most part, it's a reasonably okay. accurate statement. Okay. Uh, so it's like a bit of, bit of genetic material in a protein coat, effectively. Yep. Right. Okay. So what came first? The genetic material in a protein coat or the the thing that it can inject itself into to reproduce itself? You know, that was a question on my comprehensive exam. Because cause like the, the virus is the simpler form. It has less yes. parts. So one would assume simplicity is earlier. But how can it reproduce itself if it doesn't have any mechanisms to do that? Yeah. So I think if we just look at literature, they talk a lot about you know, this is what we think the early viral genomes look like. Okay. And um, I think for the most part, we're talking about an RNA genome. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have examples of RNA viruses that don't actually have capsids. Um, so okay. there are there are fungal viruses, which they're tiny. I think they're like 2.5 kilobases. And essentially, they code for a single protein, which is their replication protein which then sits on the genetic material that codes for it. Right. And it, it kind of looks like a ribosome, almost. Okay. Um, and so what I would, I have always imagined that that was sort of what some of the first viruses looked like. I'm like roguelike RNA elements. Like. Okay. So would that have happened before like the first bacterial, so the first single-celled organism or after? 
do you think? Well, I mean, you need a host, right? That's, yeah, like, that's what I was thinking. Cause, yeah, yeah, like, okay. Like I, I would, I would imagine that you, you'd need some cellular life before um, you'd get virus, like virus okay. coming about. Now, I, I think uh, the current idea is that most of most of the viruses came from like the single-celled organisms, mm-hmm. and then you know came onto land and found us. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, and and one would imagine that the oldest viruses come from the sea anyway. Yeah, that primordial okay. soup of joy. <laughs> Which is great for swimming in because it's full of shit. There you go. So many nutrients. <laughs> Good for your immune system. <laughs> okay, so uh, what exactly are you studying at the moment? Um, so I have just wrapped up doing some more medical-based virology. Like mm-hmm. I worked a bit on polio because we still work on polio because we're still not done with that you'd think right anyway that's just depressing you want to think about that how how come we're not done with it i mean didn't salk sort of fix it like 60 years ago well i mean yeah we have vaccines Mm -hmm. if everyone were vaccinated like we wouldn't have a problem Uh, okay right we've we had that outbreak just outside of new york um did you yeah, in a community that, that I wasn't that. vaccinated. Okay. Um, there was a case in the Netherlands that they picked up. In, um, the person was asymptomatic, but they picked up polio in wastewater. Um, wow. Like, it's still around. That's it's a scary around. thought. Yeah, it is. It is a scary thought. So I did some work on that and then had to put that down during COVID to do work on COVID. <laughs> Because that's what everyone did. Yeah, it's it's like my kids aren't vaccinated for smallpox because the doctors in Finland said there's no need because there's no smallpox. I am not vaccinated against smallpox and it terrifies me. Okay, I am vaccinated against smallpox because when I was little... Oh, look at you. Yeah, well, we were in like 1978, we were moving to Argentina and from Britain and my grandpa, who's a doctor, um, vaccinated me and my sister and my mm-hmm. brother um, with a sort of scraping the arm with a needle right. sort of thing. Yes. And so I, I have the, the smallpox scar there. Um, but it's like, it, it worries me that my children aren't vaccinated for, for smallpox. Should I be worried or not oh. worried? I mean, you're talking to the person who four years ago asked the occupational health nurse if I could have a vaccine against smallpox and she laughed at me. She was like, why? <laughs> I was like, why not? What exactly? Um, I mean, so the, oh, I stand corrected, but I believe that the monkeypox vaccine, I think there's one that's a smallpox and monkeypox vaccine. So okay. you could look into that. I could. Okay. You could look into that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's probably out of all the vaccines, it's the scariest one just of how it's like administered. Um, yeah. I don't like needles. You have to like, yeah, I don't like them either. Right. But like that. Yeah. And I can remember the scratchy, scratchy. And then that blister comes up later. Yeah. And it's like, nah. But whereas polio, it's just a sugar cube and you swallow it and you're done. Yeah. Well, nah. I think, I think they do advocate to get the injection rather than the oral one. Okay. Um, because the oral one, you can still transmit. I think that's the way okay. around, right? Like one of them reverts. Because it replicates in your gut, right? And it can revert back to wild type. So while you might not get infected, you can spread it. Huh. Um, wow. 
So I, I didn't know that. So ah. I know I know in Canada they give that you only get the injection now. Okay. Well, this was a long time ago when I had so, my sugar cube. So yeah. <laughs> well, you know. Um, but yeah, so that's what I was doing, and now I work on less exciting viruses. I work on viral vectors, so therapies, you know, things that okay. they use to deliver genetic therapies to to people. Um, and the company looks at... It sounds really horrible when I say it, but it's like we essentially try to make these viral vectors do a better job, like infect cells better so they can make more of themselves so we have more of the therapeutic. But just saying... So how, how exactly does that work? Um, so it's small molecules that you know, act on certain pathways in the cell. Um, so the, it's a two-step process, right? So you put in the genetic material into the cell so that the cell can make your therapeutic. And that goes by normal viral replication. So that happens in the lab. And so at, at, at the pr production phase, you want to make as much as you can to keep costs down, right? Yeah. Um, and so we use small molecules, which essentially bad for the cell, great for the virus. Um, and then it makes these viral vector particles, which can, as a therapeutic, they can enter the body, but they don't necessarily replicate, right? They're not an infectious unit. Um, okay. So, so it's, it's what, like a little virusy protein shell with, stuff inside and it yes. kind of gets injected into your cells by the protein. Yeah, and it delivers whatever it's supposed to deliver. Okay, what, what's an example of something that might be delivered that way? I mean, we, we use vaccines, right? Like we have okay. adenovirus vaccines. Um, I think there's a bunch of genetic disorders that they try and, and treat by providing the proteins that might be missing, right? Okay, so if you're if you're... DNA is not producing this particular protein, they can inject that protein into the cells. Right. Okay. Or like it, the, the genetic material to like... Oh, right. So they, right, they inject the, the missing gene into the cell. and But that they won't like combine with the nucleus. It will just start replicating it. No, no. We, we, we don't modify people. No. Well, <laughs> I mean, I was, I was thinking because you, you, you'd have to have some kind of mechanism for getting it into the nucleus and then to the, mm -hmm. getting it in the right place in the... Yeah, so some of these viruses do replicate in the nucleus. Um, so they, okay. they have signals to get to the nucleus. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't have the joy of getting told exactly where our products go. Um, ah, I have okay. the joy of just making more. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of okay. sad because it's not the fun bit, but you know. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, were you particularly busy during the pandemic? Were, were all the virologists, like, transferred to COVID stuff? or? Um, so, it, it kind of depended on, on, on who your boss was. Um, okay. So, our university shut down. Like, I was working as a mm -hmm. postdoc at that point. And the only way you could get access is if you did COVID research. Right. Um, and so, we were fortunate we actually had a level three laboratory. Uh, however, there was no virologist trained for it. Um, because okay. they'd been doing mainly TV work. Um, and so, you know, we had to go undergo a bunch of training. Um, it was a little surreal in some sense, you know, because you'd go into this really controlled environment and you'd have this pandemic-causing virus, which was very well behaved in the lab, whereas outside people were losing it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it was a strange time. Um, but yeah, so I had 
two weeks that I worked from home in the pandemic, and then the rest I was back in the lab. Okay. What were you doing in the lab? Um, we were trying to set up coronavirus research because that it's it's not a virus system that we really worked with at at UBC, and so we had to get level two systems set up so that we could get the level three set up. You had to source virus, source cells, write SOPs, get biosafety clearance training. Right. It, okay. It was a little chaotic. <laughs> Did anything useful come out of it? Yeah, I mean, I think apart from leaving the labs with more model systems, um, we published a couple of, of nice papers. Um, well, some of them are still being written because, you know, it's a slow process. Yeah. But um, one of the labs I worked with did a really nice proteomic screen um, looking at essentially how the virus messes with our proteins. Okay. Um, which provided, like, it's a big screen, so it provides a lot of substrates for people to study. Okay. Um, and it looked at the one of the proteins, the, the protease, right, which the one of the treatments is against, right, because the protease causes a lot of problems. Um, well, so, the protease is an enzyme that eats proteins. Yeah, yes. Right. And so when the virus infects the cells, it uses that protease to cleave its proteins because it mm -hmm. makes this huge protein right that needs to be chopped up but it also cleaves a lot of host proteins and so ah. some of them is like it sees immune proteins and it's like nope i don't want an immune response and it chops it up um right yeah so that's okay. what we looked at <laughs> the chaos <laughs> that ensues from molecular scissors as we call them excellent okay now I could carry on talk about this like for the, literally for the next hour, but we're, we've been chatting for like nearly half an hour now and, um, I haven't actually asked you anything about swords. So I'm thinking oh, the average listener is going. I have swords. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, make, at least, at least make this peripherally relevant to the usual topic guy. Come on. That's so, fair. All right. So how did you get into historical martial arts? You know, whenever I get asked that question, I always wish that I had a better answer. Because I feel like everyone has these amazing answers of I was a little kid and I loved swords and, you know, romanticized Renaissance periods. But, I mean, mine is not nearly as exciting. So, you know, hold on to your seat. Um, it was really much by chance. Like, it wasn't okay. planned at all. Um, it was during a stage in my PhD where I realized I was spending way too much time at work and I needed an extracurricular activity. Mm -hmm. And so every day I would read these coupons called Groupons. Okay. And I would try to convince my office mate that we should do something. And it was, there was a mad mixture and she always said, no, no. And I'm not someone who wants to go and try new things by myself. So I was like, okay, fine, whatever, you know, and it became this ritual and one day I read something about fencing and she said, yes. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, what have I done? <laughs> um, yeah. But so we went. So where did, where did you go? Um, so we went down to Academy Duello because I was living in Vancouver at that time. Ah, okay. Because most, most historical fencing clubs do not run Groupons. Right. And I was thinking of all of the historical fencing clubs in the whole of Canada, the only one <laughs> I can think of that would probably run a Groupon would be Academy Duello in Vancouver. There you go. Um, <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. And okay. we had to choose between the rapier introductory course or the longsword mm -hmm. introductory course. And I'm a sensible person, so I chose the rapier course. 
Why is that um, more sensible than longsword? Excuse me. Uh, hello. Longswords are very sensible. You get to hold them with two hands. Rapiers are tiring. You have yeah, to but I can have a cup long... of tea and fence. It's yes, civilized. But, but you have to go into a great long stupid lunge holding a big heavy sword with one hand. Keeps whereas you Whereas a longsword, you make nice short steps with, <laughs> with a sword held in two hands. It's just much less work. Okay, so you love rapier, all right? I disagree with you. Well, no, honestly, the reason why I chose rapier is because it was the one introductory curriculum that did not mention grappling. I'm not a grappler. Ah. I was like, I don't want to grapple with people I don't know. Fair. So that's how we got to rapier. Like, there was no, at that point in time, there was no bias other than against grappling. Um, And so, yeah, we did the introductory course, and I really enjoyed it, and I stayed on, and... I was a student there since, I think, 2013. Okay. Eventually ended up teaching, really enjoyed it. Um, I even picked up a longsword. Okay. Um, did some bolognese. Uh, just, yeah, I just kind of, I kind of got, I don't want to say got stuck because that has like a negative implication to it, but I kind of got sucked in, you okay. know. Um, and you're still training now? Yes, yes. I think my training has changed a little since we've moved to Ottawa. So who are you training with in Ottawa? So I am training with two clubs here. Mm-hmm. Um, I do some bolognese and a little bit of longsword. And then I do some uh, saber with the, the saber folks um, who also do Irish stick. I don't do Irish stick, but Maxime teaches Irish stick. Um, oh, Maxime Shurina. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. He's been on the show before. Yeah. So, okay. So you don't do rapier then? No. Okay. I miss Why it. not? It's sad. Um, I don't think either of the clubs like do rapier, um, and so we haven't really been doing rapier. We'll do it at open sparring nights. We'll we'll bring out the rapier. Um, okay. You know. Did you not like want to set up a like a study group within one of the clubs and do you know, a bit of rapier? Maybe you're not the first person to say this. Okay. Um. I'm definitely not opposed to it. Like, we moved to Ottawa in November, so, you know, still trying oh, so it's to quite find our recent. feet. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you okay. know, trying to find our feet. Um, but, yeah, we, we have some we have some friends that we, we train with in the backyard and moving. We're working up to rapier. We're doing some foil and, you know, we'll, we'll get to okay. the, 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 the bigger, bigger weapons. Okay. Um, well, speaking of bigger weapons. Oh, Flags. Oh yes. <laughs> okay. So, first off, I mean, I'm when when we were sort of initially getting in touch about you coming on the podcast, and uh, a mutual friend recommended you for the show, and they mentioned flag waving, mm-hmm. and I was, m- the first thing that came to my head was Alfieri, who has oh, yes. a section on flag waving. Yeah. Is that the sort of basically battlefield signaling flag? Is that what we're talking about? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm still sort of trying to figure out exactly where in the world of flag waving I fit in. But okay. yes, that is the very first text I read. Okay. Um, that is the text that I based flag size on after I realized my flag was too small. Um, okay. I, I looked a fair bit in, because there is a living tradition of flag waving, right? Like, there is, in Italy, yeah. It's big in Europe. I, I actually, I talked to a group in, in Germany, and they were so helpful. They sent me so much material. I learned so much about flag waving through this group. Um, okay. 
there's a whole federation apparently. Yeah. Um, and what I learned was that there's a lot of diversity in flag waving and that the living tradition is very performative, which yes. is not a bad thing. Like you watch some of those videos. They're amazing. They're amazing. Like, the agility, I've, I've seen it live. It's, it's incredible. Oh, it's, I actually bought some of their flagpoles because I was like, there's no way my flagpole could do this. And I was like, the balance is, it's trippy. It's, oh, it, <laughs> it's. Uh, uh, okay. All right. <laughs> so firstly, tell us what kind of flag are you waving? How big is it? How long is the pole? How big is the actual flag itself? What's so the I flag? have two right okay. now. I have the one that I made to start with where which is loosely based on the sizes they have in in italy which is the poles about as tall as me oh it's a little shorter than me so it's like a hundred and 170 centimeters okay um and it has a synthetic synthetic fabric flag i went to a flag shop i was like make me a flag <laughs> how, is, how big is the flag the flag is that one is uh just over a meter by just so it's 110 centimeters by 110 so square and it's yes. 100 that's pretty big I mean, there isn't actually that much pole left to hold on to no no not okay. a lot so this is this is one-handed like all of the okay so backtrack all of the manuals show one-handed flag waving right. if you look at the living tradition in europe this, they have three types of flags they use the smaller flag is one-handed. There mm-hmm. is a big one, which they use two-handed. And my understanding was that there is a group in Belgium that used to do it one-handed because that was the traditional way, but they couldn't keep up with the tricks. <laughs> so they had <laughs> to use two hands. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, that my, my very first flagpole was literally, a. this was in COVID, right? It's a piece of PVC pipe that I put the flag on and I put washers in the bottom so it had a bit of weight closer to my okay. hand. Um, and then I sat down because I'm a sucker for punishment and took the manuals and tried to measure because they didn't have any measurements, right? No. The, I think the only measurement we see is somewhere in Wickton now where I think Columbani says like the flag should be roughly, the flagpole should be roughly as tall as you. That's like the only measurement I could find. And so I measured. I measured people. I measured flag length, I measured pole length, and I almost went nuts. Um, I made box plots, I took the average, um, I tried with three different manuals. Alfieri was by far the easiest to measure. Um, and it turns out that my flagpole was a lot smaller than what they wanted. Okay. Um, and so I don't remember the exact specifications, but essentially if I stand up, and I stretch my arm out to the heavens. That's about how tall my flagpole is, the big one. Okay. Um, so probably about eight feet. Yeah, probably. So I'm okay. like 180 and is that, you, centimeters. You're not going to use that one-handed? I have been. It's hard. Bloody hell. That's why that you is, start with a little and, one. And with a great big flappy bit of cloth on the end of it. That's going to yeah, be Yeah, yeah. So, so the flag is bigger, right? Like I think the flag is um, like a hundred and... 160 centimeters by it. This one's also square. It's huge. Um, that is enormous. And so I actually bought an aluminum pole, uh, like similar to the ones they, in the States, they use them for color guard. Like they have the tall yeah. one, which was the right length. So I was like, yes, I don't have to use a piece of PVC pipe that like warps like crazy. Um, and that comes with weights, which was a little easier. Um, 
But yeah, so definitely start off with a little guy. Okay, can't do as you, much with a big one. Sorry. Okay, what are you what are you doing with the flag? So I work my way through Alfieri's techniques. Okay, well, most people listening one. will never have seen this book. Well, I've only ever seen Alfieri, it once. It's for free. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Is free. sure, sure. But but okay. So what are you, what are the sort of movements like? I mean, are you swinging it around like a sword? Are you waving it back and forth over your head? What are you actually so, doing with it? A lot of it actually is described as sword actions, right? He's okay. got Mandridi in reversi, mm-hmm. um, coming down on Squalombrati lines, mm-hmm. but there's a giant piece of fabric, right? So you can't yeah. you can't bring you can't bring it down as low as you would a sword because yeah. you don't want it to hit the ground. Um, and so there's some modifications to that. But the body movements are actually very similar, right? Like you need to sure. use your whole body. Like you can't just wave from the shoulder because you're gonna hate your life. Um, so he has a lot of actions like that. Um, he has a couple of throws. Um, so passing it from one hand to the other because he has a very strong opinion about using both both arms, which is good. Like it's a really good way as someone who does a lot of rapier and who doesn't use the left arm. It's a really good way of getting you know that side of the body yeah. engaged again. Um, he has Molinelli. He has mm-hmm. you know actions where you grab the flagpole in the middle to do that figure eight type of action. Yeah. Um, he has a pass around the neck, which is a little more fancy. Um, so uh, you do it... so you do a circular action. Yeah. And then essentially put the middle of the flagpole on your neck. So if you're coming in a clockwise coming around your head, so it's coming from your right, put the flagpole on your neck and you essentially swing it around so you can catch it in the middle of the flagpole on the other side of your body. Okay. Um, And then he has a bunch of passing it under the leg, which is just fancy. (laughs) Okay. So what is it all for? What is it all for for me or what is it all for historically? Well, let's start historical and then go to you. Okay. Um, so again, my understanding was a lot of it originated from um, battlefield signaling, right? Yeah. And apparently, you know, each each group would have their own secret sequence or technique so that you knew if someone else had stolen your flag because they wouldn't do that super secret technique that only your people knew. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> which was kind of interesting. Um my understanding is that ensigns were also responsible for lifting, uplifting the spirits of the troops, you know, and doing the rah rah. Um, yeah. So there was a performative aspect to it, um, especially if you came back from the battlefield having been victorious with your flag intact, you know. Yeah. You walk into the city and you twirl and you know you look fancy and everyone goes ooh. Okay. Um, so historically, it was a combination of. Well, basically, it starts out as practical battlefield signaling and becomes mm-hmm. a performance for, you know, morale and other things. Okay. Yeah. So why do you do it? Because that's a lot of fun. Who doesn't okay. want to partake in something described as noble exercises of artistry and grace? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, fair like, enough. Good adjectives. Sold it. Um, I... Again, originally, this was sort of a, it's a I, I got into this in a very odd manner. Um, I, okay, how, how did you get into it? I was working on assessments through, through Duello. Um, and one of the assessments was to interpret a bunch of assaulty, right, from the yep. text. And 
everyone has an opinion about how you interpret a salty and everyone, you know, there were so many keyboard warriors <laughs> and it was yeah. just exhausting. And I wanted something that, you know, was a little, little more true to the exercise, you know, being okay. like taking something that I don't have all this noise and chaos, right? Like that, like I could actually engage with and test my own hypotheses. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got onto Alfieri's flag. And I was like, well, would you allow it? Can I try this? And like, I'll still do three bolognese or salty, but you know, can I interpret this? Um, and it was a lot of fun. You know, I think okay. it was, I think it was true to the exercise. Like, I think I learned so much more because I couldn't just, you know, get frustrated and go onto YouTube and see what X, Y, and Z had to say and be like, yeah. okay, that looks like a good enough interpretation. Um, and so, you know, just having that freedom to, to test your own hypotheses and fail. Like I failed way more than what I would have if I had done yeah, something. It's like 20 years ago. Yes. Be- exactly. Before YouTube and before all the blah, blah, blah. Right. When yes. we were figuring out historical martial arts from scratch, like it, or in the nineties. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It was, it was great. I mean, it's better now. If you just want to get good at swords quickly, now yeah. is much better than then. But. If you actually want to figure it out, mm-hmm. it's there isn't much left that hasn't been figured out. I mean, there, there for is for the most part. I mean, there's a lot of details that we could do better on. Sure, sure. And there's the and there are lots of scheme. Yeah, there are lots of sources that haven't been properly studied and whatnot. But generally speaking, you know, it's quite easy to come up with a historical longsword system because there are loads of them and they've been mm-hmm. published in various ways. And yeah, it's like yeah. it's a lot easier than it used to be. Um, so I totally get the. It's nice doing your own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so does your flag waving... Well, actually, here's a question that popped into my head earlier. What have you got on your flag? What is it a flag of? Uh, right now, I have nothing on my flag. I have a blue flag because I like okay. blue. <laughs> so it's just plain blue. Okay. Um, yeah, I have a, a teal blue flag, which is the small one. And then the big one is a white and blue because that was the fabric. Uh, okay. So I have yeah, a design yeah. in mind. I have do you? A design what, what's in the mind. design? I do. Oh, man. <laughs> you don't have to so, tell us. No, 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 no. No, that's fine. Um, so I took a little bit of inspiration from the modern, the modern flags. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have guinea pigs. I love my guinea pigs. I'm a big okay. pet person. So actual real guinea pigs, not not yes, humans no, real, you test on. Real, okay. real guinea pigs. No, okay, no, yeah. they, they, they're over there. They haven't squeaked yet. Um, okay. And so I've been working on a design of a Bolognese-inspired guinea pig. Oh, fantastic. Which will one day go on the flag. That is okay. the plan with a poofy hat and everything and the chubby cheeks under it. Oh, my God. Um do you know um, Pavel? Oh, what's, what's his surname? Oh, the he, chinchillas. He does chinchillas. Zoom. I've seen yes. images. I've seen yeah. images. Yeah. I, I, I have. I have one of his prints in the next room. Um, nice. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so something that sort of. It's not going to be that cheapness. good. <laughs> but yeah. Well, why didn't why didn't you get Pavel to do it for you? Maybe I should. Yeah. I mean, I I hired him to do a book cover for me. Okay. And he's, he's lovely to work with and he does amazing work. So just okay. hire him. 
Okay, well, maybe I will. I have a high standard, though. Some people don't draw guinea pigs well, but I guess if you can make chinchillas look good, you can probably do guinea pigs. I, I, I think I think Pavel could could probably handle it. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. yeah, that's the plan. That's the plan for the flag. I have some completely white flags that are just waiting to be to have to have a bolognese guinea, guinea pig, pig yeah on it. Excellent. Yep. That's a that's a great idea. Okay, so. There is this modern tradition of flag waving. Mm-hmm. How does it relate to or compare with the stuff in the historical sources? I mean, I think they've stripped it down and made it much more flourishy. So, so the there are sections in the old manuals which we just don't see at all, right? There, there are sections about how to defend the the flag. So you see thrusts with the flag. Yeah. Um, there are sections with sword and flag which is actually okay. a lot of fun. I bet. Um, but so we, we, we don't see any of that defensive aspect, right? We've, they've gone a lot more to high throws, um, very much choreographed, um, very gymnastic, um, and much, much lighter poles. Like when I first got one of their poles, it sucked. Because I was like, all oh, the weights in my hand. I don't know what to do with this. I don't have like meters extending from my hand. That's heavy. Um, it is very different. Okay. So like they claim, the, the, the Germans that I've spoken to, like they know of the old manuals, like they'll reference them. Mm-hmm. But the techniques are, are very, very different. I mean, that, and that's what you'd expect in a living yeah. tradition. I mean, the things change over time. Yep. Um, which actually brings me on to okay we can come back to flags anytime you just have to wave a flag at me and we'll change the subject but oh, I don't have a flag on me <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay you're right now you're studying classical fencing with Eric Myers yes yeah yes. okay and I know Eric quite well and um, so you're doing the I've forgotten the name of his the Italian classical fencing stuff that he does Remind me of the name. Um, it's through the Fencing Master Certification Program. It's uh, The book was written by uh, Dr. Gaugler. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so William Gaugler's system. Mm-hmm. So Maestro Sean Hayes is also qualified yes. in that system. Yeah, okay. So I guess my real question is, he's in California, if I remember rightly. Yes, and that's you're correct. in Ottawa, and that is basically as far apart as you can get whilst remaining in North America. Um, yeah, thanks for rubbing that in. <laughs> okay, so so how do you do it long distance? So we actually started this the week before COVID hit. Like um, he was I'm up in, in Vancouver. Um, for an event and I was like hey I'm interested in this like Adrian's interested we'll buy the stuff can you give us a crash course when you're up here Um, and he did and then the world went into lockdown and we were like well what do we do with ourselves and it just was such a natural transition right because we had the foils we had just had this crash course there were two of us (laughs) and so Ah, right so is, is is Adrian your partner yes Yes. Right. Okay. So, you're, and you're living in the same house. So it's like you have yes. someone to train with in and the same house. Okay. Yes. Right. So that okay. makes life so much simpler, right? It does. We could go out every day. We could work through the book. 
whenever we got into a spot of trouble, you know, send up a message to Eric, be like, I don't understand. What does this mean? Um, You know, video recordings, live streams, that sort of thing. Um, Okay. Yeah. But it is, oh, absolutely. Two people, so much easier. (laughs) Like, I couldn't do this by myself, right? Well, I mean, I've I've given um, fencing lessons over the internet. Mm-hmm. Where there was just the one person on the other end of you know, the right. Zoom call, and so all you can really do is mechanics stuff. Yep. Right, and and that is so frustrating because if I'm in the room, if I'm in the room, I can I can get somebody moving nicely in seconds, right? But when I when it's sort of translated through a screen mm-hmm. and it it's just it just takes me like. Yeah. Like five or ten minutes to get an effect that I can get in literally ten seconds yeah. in person. Yeah, because you can't just, just move something, right? You have to right. use words and hope they carry the same meaning to that person. Yeah, and, and, and you, can't, you can't say you can, you can say you can show it to them, but you mm-hmm. can't say follow me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I'm 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 feeling a little bit sorry for Eric, but if it's, if there's two of you, it is easier. <laughs> It's okay. He's a very nice man and very patient. He is. Yes, he's a lot more patient than I am, <laughs> truth be told. Um, okay, so how are you getting on with it? Are you planning to certify in that system or are you just Yeah, so it? just before we moved to Ottawa, we actually had him up for a workshop in Vancouver. Okay. Um, which was nice to do some in-person stuff. It was also really nice to have other people in the school be exposed to it. Sure. Um, and then the plan is in July to go down um, to take the class. Okay. And then the year after that, we will hopefully test if okay. nerves prevail. I don't like tests. <laughs> okay, test. It's, uh, there's three levels, aren't there? Uh, there are, yeah. So you'll be testing for the first level next year? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we've done the theory course because that was easy to do in COVID. Sure. Uh, um, and then... Yeah, just getting the credits and getting whooped into shape in person. I'm a little worried about it. Kind of hope Eric doesn't do oh, this. I'm no, a little no. worried. Eric's very nice. He'll be very nice. I, oh. I, I know I know historical fencing masters who are, who are not that nice. You know, doing the classical fencing masters who are not that nice in person. Right. Um, but no, Eric, Eric will be very gentle, I'm sure. Oh, it's more um, just like... But actually, a question. So when when Eric came up for that the first post COVID seminar, how how well did your um, the training you'd done at home? How well did it fit with what he was actually trying to teach you? How close was it? I mean, for the most part, I think it went reasonably well. Okay. Um, I think where so we had done primarily foil. And then we picked up some saber because, you know, why not? Um, And I think, at least for me, like the saber was a little harder because I hadn't Mm -hmm. had that crash course in it. And that was all from the book. Um, I think the part that was the hardest to do in person was actions on the blade because there was a lot more nuance, which... Two of us flopping around outside being like, oh, I don't know, the sword moved. Yeah, we must have done it right. Sure. Yeah. Um, and just, just getting yeah. um, getting the cues more precise. Like it was, it was fine-tuning, right? That's what's taken so very long to get historical fencing systems right. 
Because you can get the gross actions quite straightforwardly mm-hmm. from the text and the pictures usually. But that nuance of how exactly are you applying this? How exact, what, what exactly are you doing to get this response that you want? Right. Um, yeah, and, and of course, you know, there being no living tradition, we have no way of knowing we're getting it right. But um, I think we're a lot closer than we used to be. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, so you all have been putting a lot of effort into it. <laughs> so it would be miserable to be like, yeah, no, wasted effort. Sorry, guys. <laughs> now, I don't okay. think it's wasted effort. No, 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 of course not. And even if we are completely wrong, um, you know, if, if Fiori shows up in my house one day and, and says, Guy, I'm, I've, I've been spinning in my grave so bloody hard, I'm reanim- reanimated, and I've come around to show you how to do it properly so I can get back to being dead, you then, then and that, that would be great. But even if, even if it turns out that we are massively wrong about certain things, I think we're still, it's still worth doing it. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, it's a great exercise, right? Honestly, there are more efficient ways to exercise. No, no, I mean like the academic exercise. Oh, oh yeah, sure. It's, yes, it's, yes, it's a great academic exercise. Um, okay, I do have to ask you about the shooting. Yes. Because yes. it's weapons, and I like weapons, and you know, I'm, I, I do a bit of pistol shooting myself. But nice. um, so, what sort of target shooting were you doing, and how did you get into that, and how come you represented South Africa for ten years? Oh, good question. Um, so I did. Okay, I've spent enough time in Africa to know that there's a lot of people who can shoot really well, like really, really well. It's kind of a cultural thing. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so your your shooting must be really pretty bloody good. Well, so I used to do a twenty-two long rifle, so single okay. shot bolt action. Right. Um, and like I grew up in a house where you were taught gun safety from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, my dad had a lot of firearms. He was a big hunter. I grew up around firearms. Um, he was also the coach for our high school target shooting team. So okay. much like in the UK, we have target shooting teams mm-hmm. associated with, with schools. Um, and so when I got to high school, you know, I'm only child. There were no boys, even though right. it's a very much, you know, a, well, for a long time, it was a male centric sport. Um, and so he was like, why don't you come try out? And, you know, you do things to please your parents. And so I was like, oh, sure, fine, whatever. And I went, I tried, tried, didn't try very hard, but you know, he sort of shot at a target and eh, it wasn't great, but whatever, you know, I didn't create it. I I did. I tried, right? That's what was asked of me. And as I was leaving practice, I overheard a really snide comment from one of the guys in the team about how poorly this had gone for me. And I don't remember what the comment was. I just remember, you know, that feeling where you're just like, oh. (laughs) And so, you know, what most girls do, I went home and I was upset and I had like a good cry. And then I was like, okay, you know what? Bugger this. We're going to do this. We're going to put some effort in. We're going to get better at this because apparently spite is sometimes an excellent motivator. Um, (laughs) It certainly is. And that's what I did. You know, I went back. I was like, okay, dad, we're doing this. We're training. Like, let's do this. Um, I used to train three days a week. And, you know, we put in two, three hours a day. And, you know, I proved a point. I made the team. And then I made the provincial team. And then I realized that actually I could do better than this. And then it became a personal thing, right? Like, then it wasn't really more about proving a point. 
because the point had long since been surpassed. Um, then it just became about like beating myself and doing better yeah. and more like accuracy and precision. Um, and the nice thing about the way the system was set up in South Africa was there was always another milestone. Like there was always right. another team you could try for, right? Like you could be on the senior team as a junior, as a school kid. Um, and so that's just how I climbed the ranks. Just must okay. do better, do better. And, and you got to the South African national team, correct? I did. Okay. I did. Where did you compete? Um, I had an abysmal Commonwealth Games. Okay. Turns out when your stocks crack, not great for shooting, but you know, what you're going to do. <laughs> your, your, the stock of your rifle was cracked. Yeah. So we, um, we had fiberglass bedding in it, right? To yeah. keep the action to sit nice and tight. Mm -hmm. And that had cracked on the trip over to Australia. Oh. So... You know. did, did you not find out until afterwards? or? Yeah, just that. <laughs> oh, jeez. But that's okay. You know, it was a good experience. It was a humbling experience. Um, yeah. I did a lot of competitions in the UK in Bisley, mm -hmm. um, okay. which went really well. Um, I won a couple of their junior competitions and their women's competitions mm -hmm. um, until I got to their X class, which was a sad day because there's really good shooters in the UK. The competition was fierce. <laughs> what is the X class? So so they have um, classes based on what your average scores are. Right. And so they start with D class, which is beginners, and then you work your way up. And mm -hmm. they have X class is like their top class. It's like okay. where the British team normally gets selected from. And um, right. But they will... A foreigner is not allowed to enter into X class. You can't right. just show up and be like, put me in X class. That's very rude. Um, you enter as A class mm -hmm. and they will decide if you are worthy of being pushed into X class. And, so it's, and you were pushed it's a into huge honor. It, yeah. Yes, okay. but I was very grumpy because there was a lot of competition. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, like, um, and I think the last competition I did was the, the first year I was in Canada. I participated in the university games in China, okay. um, which went really well. I came in second. Okay. No, I Not came bad. in third. That's right. Third, because third is better. Cause then you're grateful that you actually meddled <laughs> as opposed to being sad that you lost. <laughs> That's yeah. Fine. Um, yeah. Okay. So why did you stop? It was just logistics, right? Like in Vancouver, the range was far away. I, I cycle everywhere. I can't cycle mm. with a long rifle on the back of no. my bike. Um, and so I used to go with a neighbor of mine, um, but then my neighbor moved out of the city. And so, uh. so went my lift. And so I was like, okay, well, you know. I still have an indoor. I have a, a infrared kit, like a five-meter indoor kit. So every once in a while, I, I haul it out. But yeah. Okay. No, no more competition. Maybe one um, day. Maybe one day when I live close to a range again. But it, it, to my mind, um, shooting and swords are kind of diametrically opposed. Because when I'm shooting, I'm trying to take myself out of the equation as much as possible. So I should be completely still and only my trigger finger is moving and it's moving right. just the right amount and no more. And yeah. everything else is completely still and the gun does all the work and the gun goes off almost by surprise and hopefully the hole in the paper appears in the right place, right? 
where whereas when you're swinging a sword, you actually have to move the damn thing. Yes, it's really annoying, isn't it? You can't just like think <laughs> it into play. I'd be such a good fencer if I could just think my sword into play. <laughs> yeah. So, so have you found that the the shooting has complemented your swords and flags at all, or not? I think so. I mean, but I think it's in a in a less obvious manner, right? I think I think what shooting taught me, because it's such an individual sport, right, is that it taught me to be well prepared, to rely on myself and my capabilities, to read environments, right? Because you have wind, you have mirage, but you can only do so much about it. Mm. Um, and I think that to some extent has translated to fencing, right? Like... I can go in and I can get freaked out about having to stand opposite someone and fence, or, you know, I can rest assured that I have practiced. I, you know, I've put in the time. I have a plan. I might have to change my plan depending on the conditions, also known as what the person opposite me is doing. Um, but that I put in the practice and that I should be capable of doing that. Um, so just like calming things down a little having that, that little more Zen approach to it, I think has, has been really helpful. So I know a lot of people get really hyped up. Um, yeah. <laughs> I try to do the opposite. Yeah. I try to be like, cause once I get hyped up, I do dumb things. And then, you know, people who have been in coaching positions look at me and they're like, why? So, you know, <laughs> and that's just embarrassing. No one wants to be asked, why did you do why? that dumb thing? So, you know, like, calming things down. It's also really good training for getting your heart rate down, which means yeah. you don't get tired as quickly. Yes. Right? What, what do you do to get your heart rate down? Oof. I have to think a lot of calm thoughts, not talk to people. I put headphones in. Um, and, and again, it's that centering thing, you know, it's like just like trying to find that it's okay. You've practiced. It's good. You've got this. Like that positive talk, Okay. And a lot of deep breaths. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, my my standard tool for bringing my, my heart rate down is a short inhale and a long exhale. Yep. I do take a lot of long exhales. So, incidentally, do you pull the trigger on the exhale or when the lungs are empty or when the lungs are full or on the inhale? Oh, it's been a while. I used to exhale. So you'll be breathing out, and as you're breathing out, the gun will go off. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I think I was more consistent at releasing the same amount of air from my lungs than inhaling the same amount. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And, and, I, and I think also I, I was more aware of once I got oxygen deprived from not having taken that breath, like <laughs> if I've waited too long, like it was, yeah. it was easier for me to recognize that and be like, abort, abort. Oxygen, yeah. breathe, let's try again. <laughs> um, as opposed to sort of being in the middle. Yeah, that's why I think those biathletes are incredible. Where right? they ski like fuck and then they shoot accurately. It's like, how the hell do you do that? Right? Yes. Because no, you have to get your heart, your heart rate's probably up at 160 oh. when you're doing that skiing. And then you want it down to 60 in like two seconds. And the whole yeah. thing is timed. And you know how many people have asked me, oh, so are you going to try biathlon now that you live in a place that's got a lot of snow? And I'm like, mm-mm. No. <laughs> it looks really hard. It is. I mean, just just from a physiological perspective, it's pretty yeah. hard. Yeah. yeah it's, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. 
like it's, it's, um, it is admirable. Yeah, and, and just an awful lot of work. I mean, I've done I've done yeah. cross country skiing a couple of times, and I didn't enjoy it. A lot it. of work. It was no. just this is not it's not my thing at all. I mean, when I lived in Finland, there was some students would ski to class mm-hmm. because you could. I mean, they have like this. I have in summer you have bike trails in winter there are ski trails, and you can ski. You know, you can you can ski all over the place. Right. Um, and it's very very bad manners to step on a ski track. Yeah, I could I could imagine that. Because um, you know they're, they're like, ruin they ruin the track. Yeah, yeah. You create these night. They as as people go over the same snowy track, they create these kind of grooves, which are lovely mm. to ski on, apparently. And it's very, very bad manners to step on those. So if you're in Finland, you see like these mysterious parallel smooth lines in the snow. Don't step on them. It's rude. <laughs> yes, noted, noted. <laughs> right, but yeah. So so I get you know skiing to class, nice physical warm up, and then doing swords, swinging swords around for a while. That makes sense to me. But then skiing super fast and then slowing everything down to take careful shots, that's... I mean, I, we're talking top-of-the-game athlete, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not going to lie. It is my favorite event to watch at the Winter okay. Olympics because... Because you understand how hard it is in a way that most people right, probably don't. Right. Like, yeah. Adrian, I, I don't know, he gives me these looks because I'll sit there and I'll be like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, because you can see that sword, like, wobbling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not sword, the, the, the rifle the wobbling. Yeah. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> it's like you're there. You're living precariously <laughs> through them and struggling a lot. <laughs> okay. Now, there are a couple of questions I ask most of my guests. And, okay. Um, we, you've, you've done lots of things like virology and historical martial arts and historical flag waving and shooting rifles and whatnot but what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet mm, i don't know i have a lot of ideas i'm not sure that they're always appropriate to like vocalize in public <laughs> well we can edit out anything uh, you say so no feel free. no no feel free um you know i think maybe this is maybe not the best idea but it was an interesting idea Go on, then. um and you sort of touched on it we were like would it be really helpful if we could you know, clone some of those old masters and get all of our questions answered. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. But then when I actually went through the biology, it's like, oh, no, man, you're going to have to take some guy from 17th century Italy and, like, let him loose in this world. You're probably never going to get <clears> the <throat> same master. So then I scratched it. I was like, this is a terrible idea. Yeah, because you... you cause his Cause nurture, fen- right? <laughs> yes, the fencing knowledge is not embedded in the DNA. Yes. So that's a terrible idea. Yes. I mean, well, that was Lamarck the was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be nice, though, if we lived in a world where this could be accomplished. Okay. Right? Do you have any, any more practical ideas? That you, mm, you, yes, I mean, retirement. One, that is like my biggest idea right now. It's not on. a new idea, but retirement seems what like a good What would you do idea. when you retire? Oh, I want to live somewhere that's not a big city. Okay. But it has water and electricity and internet yep. and a good vet. That's okay. what I require. Pets. Okay. You know, I have so many hobbies that I don't get around to. I know to just work. the place. I know just the place. Uh-huh. I have the place for it. In the middle of New Zealand, right? Okay. A friend of mine has a farm sort of in the middle of nowhere, but it's got running water, electricity, and internet. And she is a proper really good vet now my father was a vet oh. so i so i know vets and this she's a very good vet and she keeps horses and cows and for other things and rides and whatnot and she's very lovely 
and she lives in the middle of New Zealand. So you can get to Auckland in like an hour or so. And you can get to Wellington some many hours. Wait, 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 wait. Does that mean I have to become an All Blacks fan? Because I don't know. No, 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 no. no, 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 Oh, oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Tell me more. The New Zealanders are very nice. and And many New Zealanders come from elsewhere and... So they understand that, you know, you being South African, you may, you may prefer a different rugby team. Okay. <laughs> and, they're, and they're very nice. But if, if, you, if, you decide, if you decide you want to move to New Zealand and live, um, I don't know, in a hut on Lizzie's farm, I will, I will happily put you in touch. Okay. But okay. It's, got, it's exactly what you described. It even has I mean, the it vet. sounds idyllic, We're, right? It is. I've been like, there. I can I can actually get like there's so many fencing manuals I've had like I've been meaning to go through and I just haven't at the time. Yeah, and and she shacked up with a really good friend of mine who is guess that get this he's like one of the best rapier people in the southern hemisphere. Okay, okay. Well, I will tell Adrian <laughs> that we'll have to move to New Zealand. Yeah, <laughs> go go move in with Lizzie and Matt. You'll have you have a great time. That sounds great. Matt, okay. well, you just solved my problem. So there you go. <laughs> I'm glad I copped out on that question because <laughs> New Zealand, eh? I didn't consider New Zealand. Wow. You don't, you don't have some friends like that who are also vets in the middle of Canada? Uh, let me think. No. Not in uh, Canada. Okay. No. Sorry. I mean, I, I know a vet in Bali. Uh, a little too hot. Yeah. Yeah. Too but hot. actually, speaking of which, it's a chap called Alan Williams, friend of my father's, who flew his single-engine plane from Uganda to Australia in no. 1975. Yes, he did. Not in one go, obviously. It was like he had to go basically like up through Asia. Kenya, up, up, up across um, Arabia, and then through Asia, and then down through um, Indonesia. And, you know, because it had like a total like flying time of about, had like a six or seven hour range. Okay, okay. Which is like absolute maximum, maybe 600 miles. Um, oh. And so yeah, so so he's a very interesting man. Wow. Oh. I guess this: he had his wife in the front seat and two small children in the back. <laughs> <laughs> I am currently I'm currently reading his wife's uh, memoir of the trip, and it was that, like, oh dear God. <laughs> we had to drive across Canada, like Vancouver to Ottawa. Yeah, that's a long way. And I don't think our sanity <laughs> was completely intact by the end. And we only had two guinea pigs in the back and well, swords. You, sh- you and should have flown it. Should have flown it. So we were planning on, but um, none of the airlines no. would take the guinea pigs in the cabin. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, in a small oh. aircraft, in like a single-engine oh. aircraft. Learn to fly and then just fly. <laughs> uh huh. Wow, that was really was super helpful. Fun. Thanks. Super fun. I don't know. I mean, we have a lot of swords. I don't know that they would all have fit. Ah, true. But you can just ship those. Yeah, we can. Ship we can. all your but, stuff and just... But I'm so oh. attached to them. I've been so, you know, what if what if, what if, if they get lost? I won't be able to replace them, you know? Uh, yeah, but your car could get stolen when you're, like, stopping off for, for petrol or something. So, you know... Well, remember, I grew up in South Africa. I'm very vigilant about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was always just, someone in the car. <laughs> you know, just the other day, one of my daughters said, because I'm, I'm, I'm fixing up the front door of our house... Um, and, you know, I, I was talking to her about some technical bit about the lock or something. She said, Daddy, you are very security conscious. And I'm like, Sensible. Well, I'm not really. Not, 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 
compared to some of my friends. But yeah, like I would never put my passport in a bag and carry the bag. Because if somebody's going to snatch something, it's going to mm-hmm. be your bag. Right. Yep. Right. The passport is always somewhere where you can't just fish it out of a pocket. It's always a pain in the ass getting my passport out. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure customs <laughs> just loves you. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, any go anywhere dodgy, you take two wallets. One yep. with like store cards and stuff in and some small denomination bills. Or whatever, so it all looks real. Because honestly... If somebody does ask for your wallet and you have to give it to them, mm-hmm. they don't check the expiry dates on the credit cards. Right. They really don't. Right. They just go, they just take the wallet and hopefully then go away and leave you. And make a and run for it. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, I, I need to, well, my children have spent most of their life in Finland okay. and well, half of it in Finland, half of it here in the UK, which is relatively safe. So right. I think, I think, yeah, we should maybe go and live in Africa for a bit. Yeah, I mean, like, when I, like I did when I was young. There you go. When I first moved to Canada, I was terrified. There weren't. I was on a first. Well, no, actually, how do they call it? Ground floor, second floor, right? Yeah. I didn't have bars on my window. I couldn't sleep the first couple of nights. I was like, someone's gonna climb in, hundred percent. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need bars. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I get it. And but actually, honestly, here. With a security glass and stuff, it takes them so long to bash their way in. You've got time to dig your rifle out and load it. Okay. So, um, yes. You're or not even call. No, 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 not not dig the rifle. No, call the police. Call the police, and the police have time to get it. That's what I meant to say. I didn't mention guns. That would be wrong. Excuse <laughs> me. You're not going to dig out your longsword? That's named oh, rifle. God, no. No, 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 um, like close quarters stuff and it's better to just wave a big kitchen knife and tell people to go away there you go while um, calling the police having called the police beforehand mm-hmm. ideally mm-hmm. yeah yes. very loudly so they can hear that you're doing it <laughs> excellent <laughs> alright okay we're getting to very silly territory here so let me ask you my final question okay which is somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts or flag waving worldwide how would you spend it Oof, I feel like this is a trap. Um, um, standardization, I think. Of what? This might not be a popular answer. Well, so in my mind, I generally separate the competitive, more sporty side of mm-hmm. historical martial arts to like the more academic, historical you know, yep. practice. So um, and so, so if we look at the... And, and I think standardization can apply to both. Um, but I think in the competition side, you know, I I think we need some governing bodies, you know, some standardized rule sets, some certified referees, you know, it's just like, like some standardization, like we see in okay. other sports. Like, I think if you're going to move to, if you're going to establish yourself as a sport, like, I think you need regulations. Yeah, well, games, games require rules that everyone agrees right. on. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. Um, and so I think, and this is... You know, I, I don't I don't do tournaments, but I have friends who do, and you know, you know I watch the videos and I, and I hear the gripes after, and and I think having that sort of standardization would just just be great. I mean, we had we had certified range officers on the shooting range. It's not like they had to do much, but they had to be certified. So and they had to be there, yeah. And so why not have certified referees at HEMA events? 
Money. Well, but I have some, right? Well, I'm I'm, I'm giving you imaginary chunks of money. So one of the things you would do is use that to, um, I guess, for it to be worth somebody getting certified, they'd probably need to be getting paid for what they're doing. Yeah. Either you you subsidize the certification or you subsidize the Mm -hmm. thing that they they need to be certified to do. Right. Or both. Okay. And standardization of equipment? Yeah, I mean Okay. We're we're we're, we're moving a, a awful awfully close to to sport fencing here. <laughs> but yes, like I, I Well, it's all, it's already sport fencing. Sure. It's just yes. it's just, just each, each tournament each tournament is a little bit different has different rule sets. Um and there are lots of different weapons you can do, but it's already mm-hmm. sport fencing. And as soon as you have like a tournament and a prize and rules that everyone agrees on and like safety equipment re- requirements. It's it's a, it's a kind of sport fencing already. Right. Yeah. So in that case, yes. Like, you know, some standardization of equipment, like equipment control. Okay. Um, I don't know what it looks like right now with tournaments, but, you know, okay. um, I'd imagine there's some level of it, but I think having a standardized um, accepted uh, weapons rules, uh, control weapon, yeah. would okay. be nice. Yeah, so you don't pitch up there with your breaker that your uncle made out of some rebar in the backyard, and you're like, "Yeah, <laughs> I know okay. that sounds horrible, right?" No. So, so, so you put the money into the sports side, not the historical side, even though no, you really do the sports side. I okay. would split it. So, what would you do um, with the rest of the money? I, I would like to see. Maybe working, maybe this is like being in academia for too long, but, you know, I would like to see us reach a point where we have, I would like to see lineages come alive, right? Like, I'd, I'd like to see people agreeing on this is the art, and they don't have to agree completely, but, you know, um, having having working groups to, to establish, establish um, more so, right? Like, and, and I think, I think a lot of people did that for a while like i can imagine when you guys started off there was a lot of cross chatter about what's this guy on what's fiore's third arm doing um yeah um and things though i would say that for all practical purposes Mm -hmm. if you look at how we execute the plays choreographically Mm -hmm. most fiore scholars are like 90 percent at least fundamentally the same right right um there are differences in the sort of tactical interpretation side of things and there are differences in training yes and there are differences in nuances of mechanics sure um i mean like give me an example first time i went to academy duello as an instructor to Uh one of the events was the first time i saw devon's students fencing rapier Okay. And oh boy, I I saw how they lunged. Okay. And I saw their back foot and what it did. Okay. Well, now you have and, to elaborate. Okay. So, in they're doing capoeira rapier, right? Sure. And in capoeira, um, il gran simulacro, uh, plate five is the picture mm-hmm. of the lunge, and okay. it has these letters all over it mm-hmm. saying which bit is doing what. Right. Right. And the letter L is the back foot with its turn. So it says in the book, the back foot is supposed to turn. Okay. Okay. So when you lunge, the back foot goes from being flat on the ground to turning in some some manner or another. 
Okay. Okay. Now, the way I interpret it is a turn on the ball of the foot, which pushes the heel forward and pushes the leg forward, so the hip forward. So you you get, I get precisely, because I've measured this, five inches of additional reach with that particular turn. What I saw Devon's students doing was basically rolling the back foot onto its edge, Hmm. which also gives you some more reach. But to my mind, there are mechanical issues with that, which make it a less good interpretation. But here's the thing. It was clear to me that they were doing this because their instructor had interpreted the letter, the the, the bit L on plate five in this particular way. Sure. Which is different to the way I interpret it. But when you can see literally the line in the book where you have a different reading, when people are fencing, then they're doing historical fencing. It's it's like we are definitely on the same page here. It's just this particular line on this particular page we read differently. So you see, right. I would I would just like, I mean, again, this is just my obsession with textbooks. Like, I would love a textbook that has Capoeira Rapier documented with here are different interpretations of the same thing, but that's just because I like having things complete. <laughs> okay, but the thing is, it is probable that Capoeira had a specific turn of the foot in mind. Sure. And it might, it might be mine, it might be Devon's, it might yes. be some diff- different way of turning the foot that neither yeah. one of us has come up with, yes. right? Yeah. I don't see any need to document all of the variations when so many of them that one sees on the internet are clearly not correct. Right. But then you could provide more correct interpretations, right? Like you could have three interpretations that seem good enough within the context and disregard like I don't know some okay. some insane um, yeah interpretation I, see, I, I don't but so again Capoeira has been around for a long time right like yeah 413 years uh-huh. <laughs> well but you know even modern people have looked at Capoeira for a long time oh yeah sure right yeah, yeah. um like, so we've just finished reading, we're busy reading the Neapolitans, and mm-hmm. that's brought up a lot of questions, um, which I don't have answers to, which is really annoying. Um, like what? Pardon? Like what? How would you describe a Neapolitan lunch? How would you describe the execution of a Neapolitan lunch? I wouldn't, because I don't do Neapolitan lunches. I do Capoeira, because I'm sensible. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, okay. Just, just for the, the non-specialist listener, because a lot of people listening are longsword people. Um, Neapolitan, who are the Neapolitan masters? Where are they? They're from Naples, obviously, but what's the period? Um, so this is later in the, the 17th century. Yeah. Um, is it like, oh, I don't remember the, the, the exact dates. Um, but we're talking about Marcelli, Mattei. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we can throw Pallavicini in there from Sicily. Um, okay. And I think one thing that stands out for me from them is that they have this, well, we like to call it the starfish lunge. It's a lot more upright. <laughs> yes, with, with yeah. rapier and dagger, right? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it doesn't seem to cover an awful lot of ground. I no. worry about my knee. <laughs> but do you not worry about your knee doing capoeira? No. The knee, the knee goes further forward over the toes with capoeira. Yeah, but it's it's 
softer. I don't know. It's 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 in a okay. in a more comfortable position. And maybe it's just because I've trained it, and like I okay. I have the, or at least I know which muscles I should be working to support it. Um, but See, again, I I, that, sorry, go for it. I'll say the Napoleon lunge is basically is closer to a classical fencing lunge. With a straight front leg. Yeah. See, I don't know. I just uh, really want some people who know what the hell is going on to sit down and give me a nice workbook that I can work from. <laughs> well, I've, I've done that for Capoferic. So I can did, you get on the Neapolitan? I did, I did that in, in 2006. Oh, okay. This is a podcast, right? So I can say what I like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Second edition of that 2006 oh, nice. book is, is, is literally, this is a proof copy that arrived last week. Oh, it's so, so shiny. It is, it is this close to being actually published. So that's oh. Fearless Companion, second edition. Blah, blah, blah. Nice. Um, so, yes. So that's that's like detailed Capoferro interpretation. Hey. I absolutely could do that for Marcelli, for example. Um, not sure I want to, though. Fair. Because it's not it's not different enough to be interesting enough. Hmm. You know. You don't. Okay. Okay. So when you say different enough, you're you're looking for a complete different weapon, or mm, or just a completely different way of of using it. It's not it's not that different. I mean, some of the mechanics are a little bit different, but I mean, look at Fabris and Cavaferro, sure. mechanically wildly different. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um. But even then, in terms of what the blades are actually doing most of the time, they're pretty similar. Right. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that, that spending a year or two doing Marcelli would up my rapier game sufficiently for it to be worth the time. That's fair. So I need to get someone else to do it. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Unless, okay, here's the thing. If somebody sends me an original copy of Marcelli, Oh, wow. You don't come cheap, eh? I do not come cheap. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, because I have an original Fabris, and I have an original Capoferro, oh. and I have an original Morazzo, but I don't have an original Marcelli. So oh. how can I possibly work from... Oh, you know, dear. No. How can I? It's like, no. <laughs> well, there you go, Internet. Send yeah, the man okay. an original copy of Marcelli if you want him <laughs> to make you a nice book. <laughs> we'll see yeah, if the no, Internet no, no, accepts the challenge. It'll be it'll be there in, in my house. I'll, I'll like take it out. And I'll, okay, so we can then get you know, copy any of the you know, pictures and, and uh, translate oh, it. Oh no, his pictures are really it. ugly. Yes, but you still have to have them because yeah, you have to interpret them. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then you know an, an academic and practical interpretation of Marcelli. There you go. It's not difficult, honestly. It's just quite, quite time consuming. Yeah. And from my perspective, not massively interesting from a fencing perspective. Hmm. but there we go um, so actually so you could use some of your million dollars to buy me a copy of Marcelli oh oh, oh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> can we make it a million pounds instead because it'll go further honestly it's imaginary money you can have as much as you want oh well in that yeah. case yeah absolutely <laughs> thank you absolutely <laughs> I would spend that on getting you an original copy of Marcelli and they're not that expensive I saw one online recently for a uh, if memory serves, I may be confusing it with a different book. I think it was around three grand. Oh, that's so. It's like it's it's expensive, but there are yeah. there you know in in terms of like flying lessons, that's that's actually not a lot of time in the sky. Okay, that's like, so so you're not willing to like just 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 so we're clear, 
you're not willing to give up a couple of like flight hours for for your copy of Marcelli. No. Okay, that's fair enough. Because honestly, honestly, the flying blows my mind, and the Marcelli is just interesting. Oh, I mean, it sounds like you've got your priorities straight. <laughs> well, I have my priorities, whether they're straight or not. Who knows? Well, I mean, from your perspective, they are, and so that's what's important, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Okay, so, but to get back to the point, so yeah. you would you would like to see, um, like, an academic overview of the interpretations of particular sources. Yeah, yeah, because that I think they're really handy, right? Like, I, so when we moved to Ottawa, um, I met a new fencer. She was brand new. Um she took some Fiore classes. She loved it. She loved the dagger. She just went and cold bought a book. It happened to be your book. Um, oh, good. Did she like it? Yes, but she loved it because it, it was laid out in a manner that she could understand, right? As yeah. someone who doesn't have a lot of, of, of background. And just watching her enthusiasm, I was like, oh, it would be so nice if you could reach more people like that. Hmm. Yeah, the books do. They're great for that. Yes, exactly. So I would just like to see more of that. Okay. <laughs> any particular gaps in the, other than the politan fencing, any particular gaps in oh, the... Oh, I don't know. I... No, Fiore is pretty well covered. The German stuff, people can't stop writing books about the German stuff. Right. I mean, Dirk Hagedorn has got like six of them out already. I mean, and they are seriously properly academic. So, so apparently, and I'm I'm going to call on Michael Heveren here. He has okay. been asking Renier mm -hmm. to translate Schiffer. It's one of the Schiffer. German. I think he's German. Um, perhaps Faber's descendant. I don't know. Not not oh, my okay. corner of the game. Yeah. But um, you know, I think I. We've had, and, and I think Renier's done a really good job of bringing out a lot of these Faber's adjacent mm -hmm. um, German rapier texts, um, which some of them fit in really well and some don't. But you know, um, I know, I know, Michael's probably a good example of someone who's been complaining about not having an English version of that book <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. Um, I've been, I've been on Devon's case about doing. Um, who was it? Pagano, I think, just because it sounded okay. moderate. Sounds kind of cool. Entertaining. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. Um, there's yeah, a lot of really they're... bad translations out there that I'd like decent ones of. Sure. But the, the thing is, finding new sources to translate mm -hmm. um, is one thing. But I thought what you were talking about was taking... A, yes. a, a source that has already sure. interpreted a lot and then yeah. doing com a comparative study on those interpretations. Yeah, I mean, I think Marcelli's probably, Neapolitans are the, the lowest hanging fruit there, right? Um, well, no, because no one's done a comparative study of interpretations of Fiore or of Capoferro or of Fadi or of any of the other really right. popular ones. I mean, no one, is, no one is taking the existing interpretations of people like me and putting them side by side mm -hmm. and going, well, Guy does this here, but Sean does this there and Greg does this there. And, you know, how right. do they all... No, no one is doing that. And I wouldn't do that because my goals are different. Sure. Because at the end of the day, I don't fundamentally care what modern mm -hmm. people think about how medieval sword fighting went. Right. 
right? That's it's it's an interesting thing, and it's it's a useful part. You know, it's, it's very useful to have colleagues who are doing work on the same subjects that I'm doing work on. Mm-hmm. That's really useful, and so I'm interested in in that from that perspective. Right. But I don't study other people's interpretations. I study but, the original so, sources and come up with my own. But so, do you think that? if we were to do this comparison, that they would really be that different? I mean, like, I, like, like your Capoferro example, I think, is a, is a good example of, of a very small... Right, exactly. It's tiny. Right. So, so my students doing Capoferro and Devon's students doing Capoferro could fence each other and they would both think, oh, it's Capoferro. Mm-hmm. And the differences between... Here's another way to put it. The differences between our schools, if you like is less significant than the differences between individual fences, right? So there's more variability within one school than there is between the schools. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You know, tall people and short people and, you know, different... Feisty people and... Right, yeah, different temperaments and exactly that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I guess that's a good point. Um, Um, I mean, I, I will admit that I do... I am curious about how different people interpret different things. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an interesting story. It's also it's difficult to, to pin down because yeah. most people doing this don't publish comprehensive no. interpretations of no. their work. No. They don't. They don't because it's a fuck ton of work and it doesn't yeah. make very much money. Right. Right. Yes. I mean... Do it for like, the love, right? Yeah, okay. But <laughs> you still have to feed your kids. And, and you know, my... You know, my training guides, like, this is, which is like, this is, this is how you should do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Medieval Longsword or the Medieval Dagger book that, that your friend very kindly bought. And do give her my love and say, if she has any questions, you know, feel free. Oh, you might regret that. <laughs> no, I, I will not regret that. I, I never regret like honest questions from keen students. Um, so, so, but that isn't academic at all. It is. It's like, this is what you should do with very little actual reference to the text itself. And I have other stuff which is a lot more academic, like my Vadi book, which is a translation and interpretation of Vadi. And I have a book on Fiore's longsword. Um, uh, From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice, The Longsword Techniques of Fiore de Liberi, which is literally image, transcription, translation, interpretation, Mm -hmm. and link to a video clip. Right. So it's like, if you want to know, it's totally thorough. And if you want to know what I think about how any given Fiori play should be done, you can pick up the book, go to that play and go, okay, this is how he's transcribing it. This is how he's translating it. This Mm. is what he thinks it means. And this is how he does it. Right. Right. Which means, but, but for your comparative thing, all of my colleagues, or at least some of my colleagues need to do that. Right. For their interpretations so that we actually have the things yeah. we can compare. So so mm-hmm. so perhaps perhaps that is a better description of, of what I would like. Okay. <laughs> More people putting pen to paper. Or, you know, actually I could backtrack. I haven't spent the money yet, right? The check hasn't cleared. No. Um yeah. it comes perhaps... in a big box full of gold coins because we're historians, right? Oh right, right, right. Better not chip the coins because I hear they can devalue that way. Um yeah. Perhaps I would be more content with more thorough books being released. Okay. So not necessarily, you know, like... Comparative. Yes. 
Although I still think that would be interesting, but that's just me. Um, I don't think you'd make as much money out of comparative because, you know, they, they, they don't, is not really going to like... Yeah, they, they don't make nearly as much money. I mean, many of the longsword has outsold the, um, from medieval management to modern practice by at least 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. I don't care because, you know, as long as at least a couple of my books are making enough money that I, I can go and write the it one I want to write, out. which is... You can fly. Yeah, I, I don't... Yeah, and I don't actually care... Right. Which, which books sell, as long as enough of them sell overall, that's mm. fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, I've, I've written books, at least like my Vadi book, I think has sold like less than 500 copies. I don't care. It was worth doing. Well, I've well, enjoyed doing it. It was we necessary have one, work. So there you go. Hey! It's got a good hold. Oh, oh, oh that's great. <laughs> I think Adrian worked out of it um, during COVID in some oh, of his fantastic. online longsword classes. Oh, good, good, good. Um, Excellent. But yeah, like I, I think it would be really helpful to have similar to you know your Fiore book. Have okay. Have text. Have the yeah. Have the translation. Have an interpretation. Um, and the link to a video clip is super. Oh helpful, man, so gold, yeah. right? Yeah. Unless you don't have internet access, but <laughs> I won't be living in a place that doesn't have internet access when I'm retired. Right? And you can always just like go and download them. And so you can take them to places with no internet. You can download them um, first before you But go. yeah, I think that's really, that's really helpful. Like yeah. I've always been a pro textbook person. Okay. I, I think videos are great. I think, but I don't like them as my single source. No, because they, right? like, they, don't, they don't say why. They say right. how yes. and what, but they don't say why. They well, can't really say why. I'm a, I'm a suspicious person. In general, like everything is slightly suspicious. And so if you're going to give me a video, now I have to go and find the book and I have to go and see <laughs> what you did yeah, yeah, is yeah, actually yeah, yeah. true. Or are you just like yeah, making up yeah. some BS that you're expecting me to, you know, have for dinner? Yeah. And so having all the information that it's transparent, I'm far more likely to have faith in you. I hope it's not misplaced faith, but, you know, I'm far more likely to have that faith. Um, and I think I would get further with it. Yeah, and you can check the work if it's transparent. Yeah. That's the yeah. thing. So even even if your faith is misplaced, you don't actually need faith because you can check. Right. Like you can put Trust, in the work. And if you Trust don't want to put verify. in the work. Yeah. yeah. Right. But it's not like you have to put in the work. Like right. you can be lazy yeah, you can and just trust the video. Um, yeah. Okay. But so, so yes. So, so I, I alter would... my, my okay. money spending. <laughs> okay. After so some you... financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd put it into financing sort of these interpretation publications, mm-hmm. which then maybe in a second round of financing, you can get someone to compare those interpretations. Series B financing, yes. There you go. Excellent. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we keep the sports side happy. We'll give them some rules and you yeah. know, they can all play nice. And yeah. But I would Excellent. like to see more books. I like okay. books. I couldn't agree more. Books well, and bookshelves <laughs> are happy, happy places and happy things to have in a house. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Mo. It's been lovely meeting yeah. you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marley. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you will find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. 
And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. And of course, if wrestling is your jam, go to guywindsor.net forward slash abrazare23 to get 50% off the new course with Jessica Finley. That's guywindsor.net forward slash A-B-R-A-Z-A-R-E-2-3 to get 50% off. And of course, I would like to thank the people who make this podcast possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run the show, and without them, I would have quit a long time ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And as always, I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Jack Gassman, who runs Horseman of Air an equestrian training school and medieval combat academy outside of Wexford in Ireland with Alessia Pagani. Alessia specializes in natural horsemanship and Jack takes care of the swords. I interviewed them both in episode 124 of the show. Jack has now invented and published a game that is very on topic for us, so he's coming back on the show to talk about it. The game is called Force of Virtue. Make sure you don't miss it. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I will see you soon. 